Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of God is Not a Theory with Ken Fish. I'm your host, Grant Pemberton, and on today's episode, we're joined by a very special guest. We've actually, I think, probably talked about him multiple times and referenced him, you know, even more, uh, but we're with the... Uh, the um, renowned Dr. Randy Clark is joining us today. And so that's exciting. So Ken, why don't you uh, give us a proper intro into our guest? Sure. Happy to do that. Um, Randy, welcome to the show. Uh, he and I go back a long way into the last millennium um, to when he was still pastoring at a Baptist church in Spillertown, Illinois. It was the Spillertown Baptist Church on the Spillertown Road in Spillertown, Illinois. And uh, I went there as part of a team out of the vineyard. Um, I was not the leader of the team, but I was uh, a member of it and uh, went back later on afterwards. I've been there twice. Uh, anyway, that was, I think, kind of the beginning, Randy, of your introduction to the world of the Holy Spirit. You were hungry and chasing all of that down. But I think that was kind of the initiatory moment, wasn't it? If I, if I have the story right. Yeah, that would be the, what I would say was the um, beginning of empowerment, beginning of understanding concepts of impartation and activation of gifts. And not only the beginning of the understanding, but the, the beginning where it really happened in my life and not just my life, but so many people in my Baptist church were so powerfully impacted. Well, so that's how Randy and I um, got introduced and it was um, 39 years ago, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, it's, it's been a, quite a while, but uh, I don't really want to dwell on that. Although Randy, you're welcome to comment on anything you may want to say about it. I want to, I want to jump forward because like I said, that was kind of the initiation for you, but you went on and became somebody who visited many of the great South American revivals and revivalists. Um, you later became synonymous with the Toronto outpouring that went on for many years. You were the one who brought that to Toronto, more or less the way our team had brought it to you. Um, and I'd like to hear from your own mouth some of the you know, key learnings, but also some of the most memorable experiences and maybe uh, some choice tidbits of conversations that you may have had with some of those South American revivalists, because, you know, most people have not had that experience, will never get to travel like that. Uh, many of those men have now gone to the Lord or have retired. And so this is really an opportunity, I think, and I've heard you speak many, many times. I don't think I've ever heard you talk very much about what you learned out of the South American revivals. And then also as, as somebody who was uh, right there at the front of the Toronto revival, what were some of your key learnings there? So there's plenty of runway in all of that. All right. Thank you. Uh, I would say some of the more memorable things uh, about the experiences in Latin America uh, were that it began in Argentina for me. It began because uh, I was interested in uh, strategic level spiritual warfare. I didn't know what I really believed about it. I know that Wimber was against it. And uh, I ended up at the first international conference on strategic level spiritual warfare and thought I was there and I was the first speaker and thought I was at a March for Jesus event. <laughs> and everybody after me is talking about it strategic level spiritual warfare. So I, I turned and said, what is this conference about? And they said, this is the first international conference on strategic level spiritual warfare. And, uh, but I, I, that's where I met Peter Wagner at for the first time and talked with him. And, um, but after I talked with John, uh, he was not very open to that to say the least. And, um, I said, well, I don't want to, um, make a decision and, and or, or leave the vineyard over something I'm not sure what I believe about. So I'm actually, I don't want to base it based upon some books I read by C. Peter Wagner. And so I went down and said, I want to go talk to like the horse's mouth, so to speak, an old country expression that I grew up with. And so I went and I, I got to meet uh, Omar Cabrera. And I met on the first trip, particularly um, Pablo Deros, who taught at Princeton Theological Seminary, Fuller Theological Seminary, and International Baptist Theological Seminary. 
who a man who I have great respect for his integrity, his intelligence, and his understanding of things such as spiritual warfare and such as need for deliverance and such as because his dad was a psychiatrist and his uh, co-pastor who I met as well, uh, um, Carlos Morita, uh, was over the pastoral care for the uh, ministry of the seminary. So, uh, um, and and so they introduced me to um, Pablo Botari, who they thought was the most knowledgeable person of on deliverance in the Western Hemisphere at the time. He had overseen about sixty thousand deliverances, and who was the deliverance trainer and overseer of Anacondia's ministry, the deliverance tent for Anacondia's Carlos Anacondia's ministry. I got to meet them, talk to them. Uh, I got to talk to the son of the leader of the Baptist denomination. Um, which would have been uh, Eduardo, uh, I'm trying to think of the last name now, it just slipped me, but uh, uh, I got to meet with his son who was working for Omar Cabrera at the time, and I got to meet Omar and, and went back and did many things with Omar for several years in the late 90s, mid to, uh, well, kind of late 90s. Um, uh, first time I met Carlos Anaconda, I didn't know who he was, and he prayed for me, and I, I prayed for him, and he prayed for me, and then they told me who he was. It was humbling. Um, I got to meet with his crusade coordinator and talk with him about what those early crusades were like and uh, the amount of, of gold fillings and things that happened and the miracles that took place in uh, Anaconda's meetings. And I got to spend a lot of time talking, particularly with Omar Cabrera. And uh, how this whole concept of strategic level spiritual warfare uh, basically was pretty much, he's one of the most important persons in the origination of that whole concept. And, and I found out, Ken, while I was there, that contrary to the books that Wagner had written, and I don't, and I don't mean he did anything wrong or with, uh, tried to deceive in any way, I, I don't mean that at all. All I mean was, I think that he he wanted to write so fast about things um, that he didn't always have the whole picture. And I'm not, and I'm not saying I have the whole picture either, but I have since in uh, talked to a lot of people, uh, including um, the pastor at, at El Shaddai Church, who who was the place where they had that first conference. Who's the overseer for the Strategic Level Spiritual Warfare Network for Latin America? Harold Caballeros. Um, I got to talk to him, got to talk to his executive pastor about how they approached that. I talked to uh, Jeremy Preen, which Cindy Jacobs said I need to meet him because he had more healings than any other church in uh, Buenos Aires. And most of them took place with kids. And they had what was called the kids army. And I got to find out uh, Eduardo Lorenzo. So it would, would have been Eduardo Lorenzo. Uh, Victor Lorenzo was his son and Eduardo was head of the Baptist and so Victor was telling me stuff that they were learning in the Baptist movement and also the things that was happening in, in um, uh, Jeremy Preen's church, because I think his wife at that time was working there. So it was a exposure. I, I talked to a lot of pastors in Brazil later. I talked to people in uh, Chile, and I talked to um, a man that a church was three years old and 3,000 people in it. No church, Protestant church had ever grown past 500 in the history of Uruguay. Um, Jorge Marcus was his name. I stayed up to five in the morning interviewing him, talking to him about how his church got started and, and the, the, the realm and the role of um, ground level spiritual warfare, during which time there was a strategic level thing that happened, but it was doing ground level stuff, much like um, jo Johann Blumhart would have experienced as the uh, one of the early pioneers of uh, the healing ministry and Protestantism in uh, Germany. And his experience when he cast this demon out of a person and then the whole region opened up and there was a revival started the next day. People were coming crying, asking to hear their confessions, which wasn't a Protestant thing, you know, and uh, uh, and just revival broke out. So in the midst of that, you know, I, I saw that there was diversity, a lot more diversity than you would think reading Wagner's books on it, because in that, it looks like here is the way it's done. And I found out that they, amongst themselves, Oh, yeah. One is in Argentina said, you need to go to Colombia because that's where they're still killing the pastors in the war um, 
guerrilla warfare. And that's where the real revival is at. So I went to Colombia before I actually went to Brazil and, uh, and, and talked to some of the, some of the uh, key leaders there. So in light of that, I found out that some of them believed um, that everybody could do it. Some believed that only the most holy people in your church and the most mm. consecrated, they're the only ones that needs to be inv- involved with it. And another guy, uh, 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 General Preen in, in uh, Buenos Aires, he said, it's if you're, if you're called into it, and if there's an anointing, he said, there's a little boy out there in that tent, it's about nine years old, 10 years old. He's got such an authority that God's called him into it. And uh, uh, the strange thing, and I'm going to get off this subject because I didn't even talk this much about it, but um, Omar Cabrera, pioneer, told me that this is a significant reason for the success of his movement. He started 465 churches in 25 years through his healing ministry. And this was part of getting ready for the healing ministry, the strategic level spiritual warfare. But he said only about 99.9% uh, was not dealing or addressing the demonic. It was intercessory prayer. It was worship. It was just getting close to God, trying to get God's heart uh, and asking God, what is it that, that uh, how, what do I need to do? What is the issue? What are the issues here? Uh, and then he said, only if God's power would come upon him. And he said, I, I, I won't, I, I can't do it. I cannot do it. See anybody else in the room. I, I, cause I pleaded with him, teach your sons, your biological sons, and also your spiritual sons that he had raised up around him, teach them to do what you are doing. And he never did. And he told me, I can't do that. He said, you would think I was crazy because when the power of God hits me in that moment, I feel like my body is so electrified that my eyeballs could pop out of my head and there's so much power. And in that moment, I know at this moment, I know what it is I've got to address. I address it and I believe, and I believe that it causes the blinders to come off of the people their eyes, blinders. Like Paul said, if you don't respond to the gospel, cause the God of this world has blinded you. The blinders come off and the powers over that city are limited for a brief period of time in which then he comes in and does his crusade. And, but it doesn't stay bound, you know? And so, but he, but he never taught, he never trained anybody. And then the last part of his life, the last few years, he didn't do it anymore because he said, now, when I was doing that, it was just my family and I, we didn't have hardly any people following us. We didn't have any churches and we were establishing churches. And now we have so many churches that when I go to do a crusade, I'll have 500 intercessors underneath the stage or somewhere else on the property praying for that meeting. Mm. And the effect is pretty much the same. So anyway, so that that's one of the things that I got to meet and one of the some of the people I got to meet, one of the things I learned was the diversity within it and um, the concept. Uh, the other thing was the just um, almost everywhere I went, there was a connection between the power of God and the need for cell groups to actually disciple. Um, there were different systems, and I have learned about most of the major systems in Latin in Latin America, but or at least Brazil, I can say that. Um, and they are different, and some are much more healthy than others. But one of the things that the early Argentine revivalists learned around the 80-something revival was that they had a huge harvest, but it, they said it like it went through their hands. It rotted on the floors. Mm. The, there were so many people got saved in such a short period of time. We did not have the ability to disciple them and we lost a harvest. And out of that, they really began then to focus on developing healthy cell systems. And uh, in Brazil, the healthiest one I think that I've seen is taught by um, Paulo Mazzoni and uh, he's, he's, his people actually, uh, since I met him and prophesied to him, his church had 170 grown from 400 to 170 while he was pastor and he was desperate. He, he was trained to be something else. And he had walked away from a million dollar contract pretty much. I mean, he's going to run the biggest mining industry in the nation of Canada for the largest mining company in the world. And he walked away from that. And he was in um, 
in Brazil. I mean, he was in Toronto and I prayed for him and God gave me a prophecy, revealed the secrets of his heart. Then God brought a woman to him, an old woman, the next day in the very back of Toronto, that seat that seat 5,000 people at that time is a year later. And uh, anyway, she said, can I pray for him? He said, yeah. And she gave him almost word for word, the same word I'd given him the day before. Wow. And then she prayed for him. When I prayed for him, he fell out on the floor for about 45 minutes or so. She prayed for him. No, she's not famous. No, no, he doesn't know her name. She's not like a speaker or anything like that. Just a lay person. Old, like in the 80s, probably. And uh, now that I'm 70, old starts in the 80s. Uh, <laughs> I'll be 71 next month. Uh, and when I get 80, it's going to start in the 90s. But anyway, <laughs> oh, there you go. That's right. But anyway, this woman reached up and touched him, and he fell out in the very back at 11 a.m. He got off the floor at 11 p.m. Wow. And he, be, he took the next year to travel the world, Cho, Europe, all over the world, Africa, studying what does it take to grow a church. And he would take concepts, put them on the wall of his office, and, one, and then he spent a lot of time in prayer that year. As he, he's also, you know, he's pastoring, but he's looking, God, show me how to. And um, one day, a bright light shined in onto the wall, onto one of those papers. And that light uh, was on the paper that said small groups. And he said, I knew this was an answer that God wanted me to learn how to do effectively small groups. Anyway, he developed his own program. And today... There are 350,000 cell groups in the nation of Brazil with a minimum of three and a half million people in them every week that's related to his ministry. For example, he uh, was asked by the Foursquare denomination of Brazil, the Quadrangular, teach our pastors about how to do cell groups. And, uh, and he did. So when I, I didn't know it at the time, and the only way I know that, because he doesn't tell me a lot, because he's real humble, a very humble guy. And matter of fact, when I met him, I thought he was the most humble guy I'd ever met, humble pastor. And I called my wife and said, this before I ever went and preached or anything, he said, I just met this pastor in Brazil. He's so humble. I'm going to go minister uh, for him. And, and when we did, you know, God showed up. is very powerful. And But um, he, uh, some of his people, so Foursquare, they told us up in Belém, which is near the Amazon, this mm -hmm. church, there's a guy there. He's got a church of 30,000. And then they have, that's just his church. And then he oversees all the churches in the in that state, which which is a huge number of churches. I talked to his son who has helped, uh, helped working with me as we were putting some crusades together in Belém. Um, and he told me, he said, the secret of our growth has been your teams coming in and empowering our pastors and equipping them and activating the gifts in them and the cell systems. Uh, there's another Baptist church near uh, San Paulo, um, and Agua Vitas is the name of uh, Living Waters Baptist Church. When I went there, just a few hundred on the wrong side of the tracks, it was a powerful meeting that we had. God just came, um, and he went for it with the Holy Spirit. And at the same time, someone taught him about how to do cell groups. Uh, the next time we went, the church were, wasn't 300. It was about 3,000. The next time we went, the, uh, the church was about 9,000. Uh, the next time we went, the church had grown to 20-some thousand. The next time we went, they started 23 new churches out of their church in one year. And they had over 30,000 now that's related to them. And he, he told me it, it was the same thing. When other Baptist pa pastors would come and say, why is your church growing so rapidly and ours isn't? And he said, you know, those things you don't like, that's the reason. <laughs> you know, power of the Holy Spirit, gifts of the Spirit, healing. We, we saw more miraculous healings in his church than almost any other church we went to. It was it was, it was really spectacular. Now, he did, he's not using the model of, of sales that Paolo Mazzoni is the leader of. He's using a model of sales that was a guy ready to join the vineyard. He's actually got the vineyard logo on the outside of his church and the inside of his church that around the 1980, uh, 94 version. And he was so close to joining, but when they disfellowshipped Toronto, it scared him. He backed away and he said, that sounds too controlling for him. So he, he didn't want to be a part. He never did join. But 
And when I first met him, I think I was still a vineyard pastor. I know I was at the time. But anyway, uh, he developed a cell system and he made all of his leaders at that time go through. I had a a minister team training manual that I translated into Portuguese. And he had like 400 uh, at that time, the first time I went there. Because I remember the first time I went, I knew why I was there because he wanted to have a repeat of Toronto. And I taught the same first sermon that I would in that year. Everywhere I go, I preached the same first sermon, the sermon I preached the night I went to Toronto. And uh, nothing happened. I mean, nothing happened. He took me out to eat the next day. And he said, I got a question for you. And I said, well, I know what you're going to ask me. He said, okay. (laughs) I said, you want to know why nothing happened when I preached last night? And you brought me down here because you want to have a repeat of Toronto. Is that correct? He said, yeah, that's correct. (laughs) His name is Aloisio Silva. And he's a good pastor. He really is. Um, He's very bright. And the church was a great church when I got there. It was probably 3,000 people when I got there. Um, Today, his church is over 30,000. He oversees his own network now. He actually asked me if I'd be his father. And at that time, I didn't have a network. And I told him, no, I didn't want to be anybody's spiritual father. I was afraid I'd fail until I got that word from Heidi that uh, that God wanted me to do it. So then I said, okay, if God thinks so, I'll, I'll trust what he believes. But anyway, um, so I told him no. He starts his own network, and now he's got over half a million people. I forgot how many churches is in his network. And he developed a cell system that um, is also one of the ones I talked about that I think is a, a good cell system. Um but in that first in that first time, I told him about it. He said, "Is this what you want?" He said, "Yeah, I wanted to see Toronto." I said, "Well, I believe I've learned enough that if I wanted to, which I have never done this, but I could get in the flesh and I could work things up, and we'd have a lot of emotion. It could look something like Toronto, but it wouldn't be God." Right. And then I told him, "I said, uh, Alizio." I'm willing to be gone from my wife and kids. My because my kids was really like three, uh, three. Oh, one, three, eight, and twelve in Toronto happened just like a year later. So two, four, nine, and thirteen. Thirteen. Yeah. yeah. And I said, uh, I'm willing to be gone from my family and my kids for what God's doing, but I'm not willing to be gone for the flesh. And if God doesn't do it, I'm I'm not going to try to make it happen. I'm just going to go home. The anointing lifts off my life. I'm just going to go home, pastor my church, because I'm still pastoring then. And uh, he said, okay, I don't want you to get in the flesh. And so, but I think he appreciated my answer. So mm-hmm. that night, he does the most weird service. I mean, weird for what happened. Not weird, but weird for what happened. So the night before, we talked about all these manifestations that had happened and everything. When Toronto, when spirit fell, nothing happened. So this night, he does a communion service for his um, his the tents full. There's over 2,500 people there, uh, but he has 400 cell group leaders, and he says, "I want I'm I want you to serve communion to my 400 cell group leaders." And so he he basically invo- invited them up. Actually, he did the communion. But after the, they had taken communion, he asked me, "Would you pray now a blessing over them?" I said, "Sure." Now, I'm not expecting anything because this has been a communion service, but I should have known God was up to something because from church history, it was at three o'clock in the morning, they started to take communion when Wesley and 30 others were knocked to the floor and had the, the uh, not Aldersgate, but the uh, other experience at, uh, uh, what's the name of that place? Lane, Fetters Lane. Is it during communion? It was during communion at midnight that at the Zinzen, Count Zinzendorf and the big outpouring of the Holy Spirit came upon the Moravians for the revival that they had was during communion as well. So I I should have known that, you know, this could happen. But anyway, so I just began to pray for God to come and bless them. And all of a sudden it starts happening all over the place. Just people are falling out right and left. People are screaming, they're crying, they're laughing. And uh, I think that service went to about two o'clock in the morning and we were carrying people. I wasn't, but people were being carried out of the tent, but it was in a tent and it was in a neighborhood, residential neighborhood. And it was so loud and crazy. And it got some people in trouble uh, with the government, local government. But um, so anyway, back to the, what we learned was I learned that it is really important to have good cells and 
I, you can also have bad cell system. If it's too controlling, it eventually will implode. And I was a part of, not a part, but I worked with one of those as well when I first went. Really successful at evangelism, but I told my friend, this is so controlling. This is going to explode one day. And it did. And uh, so I, I, so I'm not saying cell systems are the answer. I'm saying good cell systems yeah. are the answer. And, uh, and this presence and power of God together is what has been so explosive everywhere. And, uh, you know, almost every denomination I've worked with, and I've worked with a lot of them uh, in, in, in Latin America, the churches I worked with, they all had cell systems. And, that's, and, and they had their encounters once a month. And one church I worked with had so many new converts. Uh, they were having like 90 converts a week in the church. So every two weeks, they do an encounter. And they didn't want to wait a whole month. And so they had encounters every two weeks. And it's just churches is growing really rapidly. Um, most of them, it's a monthly thing. They have so many new. And at that, they talk to them about the vision that everybody's to be a leader and everybody can lead at least 10 or 12 people. And uh, and that's where they do inner healing. And that's where they want to make sure everybody gets filled with the Holy Spirit. And, and everybody, if they need to be delivered, they get delivered. So one in Latin America, for much of the I mean, Methodist, Baptist, uh, all types of denominations, they have this cell system they work with, and and they have the encounter, and and it has these factions. So what surprised me was you could be in the church in North America for a lifetime, and never have that much happen to you personally, as what they have in the first month. So I I think that has been very important. You know, just for those that are listening um, and watching, uh, Pablo, not Pablo Batari, but uh, Paolo Mazzoni, the guy I was talking about was my favorite group, cell system. My second favorite is Abe Hubers, an American born in Brazil, missionary parents. They were wealthy and they used all their wealth to, 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 to do their mission work. And, uh, you know, you might remember uh, the name Luke Hubers. Yeah, he was killed in the in that plane, little light uh, aircraft. The missionary, it's his younger brother, Abe Hubers, and his other brother is um, in Japan working as a missionary. Well, Abe Hubers is probably as one of the he and Paulo has the I think the largest uh, cell systems, and uh, Paulo has about twenty three pastors from around the world, including Europe, including Germany, that look to him for leadership. And I want to emphasize these apostolic leaders are not control people. The ones I know. They are servants. They're there to serve the church. They're there to give. They're there to, uh, to, to, you know, to inspire. And they just lay their lives down. They live these crazy lifestyles of just, just so much work, you know. And uh, but he has about twenty three thousand that uh, Mazzoni does. Abe Ubers has one of the fastest growing, if not the largest, network in Brazil. And uh, his and Paulo's is quite similar, though Abe's um, is more emphasis on one-on-one -on -one discipleship in a, within a small group, and Mazzoni's is more on the small group itself being able to work for the discipleship, because he, he just said sometimes you can get somebody that's more than one person can handle, you know, <coughs> you know only, uh, disciple. And what I would say from I learned uh, you know, one time in the, before Toronto happened, the last year I was at uh, my church, I started the vineyard in St. Louis, um, which was the second one in Missouri. Um, I learned that I, I had, uh, I started 12, uh, 10 groups in a year and we had 12 already. So we went from 12 to 22 groups and we always had about 80% of the people every week in my church in a cell group. But what I learned was the missing link was I did not have a system to take somebody that is a new convert. And one year later, they are able to, to lead a group that they're they've grounded in the word. They understand how to do ministry and not just ministry of the spirit, but just, you know, like how to do a, a hospital call and things like that. And so Paulo right now, I think he has either seven or nine thousand persons in his uh, leadership track that's one year to, to start afterwards, they start a group. So he's, 
I was only able to do addition yep. because I didn't have that system to train leaders. And so my friend, Paul Martini, he's, he's working with Paolo to, we're wanting to see a model here in the United States. And I've had some other friends that's really got fast growing churches that's looking at this as well, because there are differences in culture. But I, when he told me that they were able to see the successful in Europe, I'm, I'm thinking, okay, uh, I think this is, we'll, we'll work here. Yeah. So anyway, this is one of the things I learned in Latin America. And one of the things I uh, learned uh, from Toronto was try to stay biblical. Don't focus on the most bizarre. And I, and I tried not to do that. And because when it f- revival first broke out, I called my professor at the Baptist seminary, who was um, a great professor. He's a president later of Southeastern seminary. And he was the uh, president of uh, um, Spurgeon school of evangelism uh, down in Birmingham, Alabama, at one of the Sanford university. His name is Dr. Lewis Drummond. And he was a Keswick guy. He loved the spirit. He wouldn't have been Pentecostal, but he loved the spirit. And I called him because he's what taught me about revival. And he's one that taught me in church history and revival and evangelism about manifestations that often happen in revival. And it was his course that made me feel comfortable other than freaking out when you guys came from the vineyard to my church and all that stuff started happening. I'm thinking, because I taught my church, we can expect these things to happen because I taught them in the first great revival, awakening, second great awakening and other things. So I tried to prepare them. And so when I, I called Dr. Drummond about Toronto in the first couple of few weeks, maybe 10 weeks in, he said, that's awesome. I said, we're having a real revival. He said, that's awesome. Keep it biblical. I said, I'll do my best. So that was good advice. Uh, and I think uh, I learned in the, my history courses and, and, and seminary and, and afterwards and stuff I read afterwards uh, that um, when real revival happens, mercy ministries increase. Education increases. Out of the second great awakening, you had scores, if not hundreds, of Christian colleges that were born as a result of that awakening. Um, in other awakenings, there the Salvation Army was formed. There were all of these ministries to the poor. So that's one sign of real revival. It's a fruit. A second fruit is missions increases. There's a connection between the advance of the missions in, uh, in, uh, toward other cultures and revival. And whatever country is most in revival, they're sending out the most missionaries. Yeah. For a yeah. while, it's Korea. To Right now, it's Brazil. And Brazil and Korea are sending out the most missionaries. Why? Because they're the two countries most in revival. And so those are two signs, um, I think, of, of uh, uh, the evidence of true revival. Uh, I think others. another sign is that there will be people being more consecrated. The church becomes more consecrated. They become less lukewarm. They get on fire for God. They commit their lives to do more for God. Their, their faith grows. What they see, you know, uh, some of the people that you have seen and I've seen, ourselves included, <laughs> were, that were products of revival. It's been amazing seeing what God has done with these people who were unknown unheard of. And now they're just, they're, they're leading multitudes uh, to the Lord. So, and there are, that's the other thing. There are certain people that are raised up who are unknown, raised up based by the grace of God. And then God uses them. And another thing I learned about revival, often people who were powerfully touched in the last revival become fathers in the next revival uh, to the next generation of young men and women that are being raised up. And Often those who are being raised up, then they become key leaders in the next move of God. Those are some amazing insights. And there are very few people who have had the, um, I don't know, the purview to be able to talk about those things. It's interesting as I listen to you go through all of this, many of these are themes that I remember learning from John Wimber. Um, he would, you know, emphasize them, but he didn't, he didn't put them together quite the way you put them together. Uh, but, but nevertheless, these were very important concepts. And, you know, one of the things that I particularly keyed onto was your conversation about 
small groups. Um, I led the small group ministry at the Anaheim Vineyard for several years under John. And, you know, we knew that they were essential for getting people, as you said, healed, inner healed, baptized in the spirit it was where we raised leaders and got people going. And I think one of the things that caused what seemed to be a, a wider move of the Lord to maybe, I don't know, hit an air pocket or, or stall out for a period of time, uh, maybe in the kind of 19, late 80s, early 90s, was as we became so fascinated with the prophetic, we kind of forgot the small group ministry and many of the sort of renewal type churches, um, they went backward in their small group ministries. And I, I know that in our time right now, um, across the board, most churches that seem to be, you know, renewed um, third, fourth wave type churches, uh, they're, they're calling them connect groups or life groups now, as opposed to kinship groups, but it's pretty much the same idea. And this is where they're raising leaders. So that get, actually gives me a lot of hope for the sustainability of uh, the work of the spirit in the 21st, early 21st century, or I guess we're moving into the mid 21st century now. And, and, and the irony of what you just shared, in my opinion, is this, there is no better place to raise up and mentor people in the revelatory gifts like word of knowledge and prophecy, word of right. and then discerning of spirits than in those small groups. That's right. I call them the incubators of the spirit. That's where most of my people, they they you learn to do it there before you do it in the congregation. That's you know, right. In front of everybody. It's a, it's a better place. If you fall, you don't fall very far. Everybody right. has a good laugh. You go and eat everybody, some brownies and, and have a cup of coffee. Yeah, and, and and you'll be you you'll be talked with in love about how to do it better. Yeah, yeah. Be yeah. encouraged. Those are those are exceptionally good insights. I'm I'm really glad that we uh, talked about all this. Okay, so you're now in a, a phase where uh, you are moving into um, the educational uh, time, and it's it's you know it's abundantly obvious. From the things that you're working on, you have GSSM, Global School of Supernatural Ministry. You've got your ministry college, which used to have another name, and I can't even remember what it was, but it's, you know, online training in a lot of these disciplines. And then you've got your, your seminary. Right. Before, before we had the Global Awakening College of Ministry, we had the, the and we still have these, but they're now wrote, um included in the college so that okay. you can have a broader experience we had the christian healing certification program we've that had, was it yeah we've had uh, hundreds and hundreds actually several thousand people go through it and uh, we have about uh over five thousand i know it's gone through it and we have about 50 that are master equippers now where they took the physical healing four classes eight weeks long inner healing same four classes eight weeks long deliverance same and if you did the first two of each, you were certified to be a practitioner in um, this, these types, this general ministry. If you took all two, two and two, and then came back and finished out and did all four, that you were recognized as a specialty area. But if you did all 12, and then you did a, a residency, <clears throat> and you worked on training, developing your manual, and training in a local church, and then met just like a PhD or DMIN or doing a, a, a committee, where you're, you're doing your defense of your dissertation. You met, and if, you, if you're going to work mainly in the hospital, it'd mainly be chaplains and doctors. If your pro context of ministry was mainly in the church, it'd be mainly pastors who would ask you questions. So you had to have, to be seen to be solid, well, uh, that was, okay. Uh, you, needed to have, you needed to have that. You needed to see that you're healthy, you have done well, and you're anointed, and you're knowledgeable, and you you pass all that, and then you become a master equipper. Some of our master equippers are underground working in uh, uh, Islamic countries and other uh, countries of uh, other denom other uh, religions. Um, so, yeah, that was what this, and that's still there. There were certification programs, one in healing, and the other is in prophecy, which is a lot easier. It's, it's just six or seven uh, courses instead of uh, instead of uh, 12. Right. Anyway, 
those are still there, and we've added to them biblical, historical, and uh, theological and studies and leadership in the college. And it's meant to be for people who can't do the master's level, but they want to know more, and they want and they maybe they already have the the global school supernatural ministry, the practical training and dealing with, you know, learning who you are, identity, and who, who you are and God, and who God is in you. Uh, you've gone, you've had that and now you want more. And so that would be a level for those that, but I don't want to do the, what it's going to take to do the masters. And, and that's where it fits. And then we have the master of, of divinity and master of arts and evangelism, biblical studies and pastoral ministry. And then we have now the doctor of ministry and the, uh, Doctor of Theology. Uh, so I'm very excited about what God has done, how we, he's been able to give us favor and uh, the quality of the teachers. And uh, uh, I'm, I'm actually going to be reaching out to two denominations that they would, who don't have their own seminaries, that they would consider uh, Global Awakening Theological Seminary as, as one of the schools that they'd recommend their pastors to go to who do want to have more education. I don't want to say which they are yet, but you would know both of them. So it's amazing. I mean, it, it, it really shows, I mean, I, I'm, we're on, we're on recording uh, and, you know, we're broadcasting and I, I know that, and I don't want to appear to be uh, sucking up, but honestly, you've been very faithful with what you've been given. And even when it's been difficult, you've continued to lean in and keep your hand on the plow. And I look at the fruit that you're bearing and Jesus said 30, 60, hundredfold. Maybe you're moving up to 500 fold. I'm not sure, but <laughs> it's impressive, Randy. It's very inspiring. Yeah. Thank you, Ken. Um, so with all of that, so we talked about these three tiers between GSSM, the college of ministry, your seminary, mm -hmm. is there going to be a fourth tier? Is there anything that you're, you know, noodling yes. on that we might yeah. see? No, we're right in the middle of it. Um, but it's not like a fourth tier higher. It's another tier that's actually, um, it's a, I think it has its own niche. And it's going to be called, I think, unless we change the name, because it's, it's so, we just, you know, we're, it's, we're working on it. Um, it's going to be called Global Supernatural Discipleship. It'll be all online. And uh, uh, we have, it'll be a nine month program and six, uh, <clears throat> six stages. It's not the word I'm looking for, each of which is uh, six weeks long. And we have, uh, there'll be hundred at least 144 uh, classes. Uh, that We have 60 different speakers from around the world. A lot of them are really quite well-known. Uh, and not only my generation, but all, and, and your generation, but the next generation represented in that uh, those those uh, instructors and teachers, um, as I as I'm learning about it, because this this is uh, um, not, this this is something that didn't arise from me. This is something that arose from some of my other leaders, and and I th I think it's it's a, an amazing thing. And then there's one other I just realized it deals with education. It didn't come from me either. It's kind of like. Some maybe I'm attracting people who are interested in it, but we have a young man who's got such a heart, and he is developing curriculum for people in high school that kind of prepares them uh, to be grounded before they get into college. So it's 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 like for like juniors and seniors, and uh, it's for high school, and uh, uh, I think it's going to be amazing when he gets it done. It's a great concept. He's been working on it. And when it, when we're able to launch that, that will be another thing that we'll be doing for high school students. I love the sound of that because so many of our young adults are being siphoned off by um, the forces of modernity, which I think in popular shorthand, people call it, you know, the unbelief and apostasy of the modern age. And there is an aspect of that. Yeah. But it's also a shifting worldview. And somehow we've got to you've got to get into people's minds um, what it is to think biblically and how to hold on to their faith, even as they enter, enter into, uh, you know, university training or whatever. Uh, so I, I think it's a fantastic way of making sure we don't lose our young adults to, uh, to the outside world. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's, 
That's amazing. Well, all I can say is keep going. More power to you. Um, I, I mean, I could I could easily extend this podcast. I know we have a hard stop on the back end, so I won't. But there's so many things I'd like to ask you about further to everything you've been sharing. Uh, but we'll keep going here. And, and you can always get- schedule another one. But I, my wife would kill me if I'm if I miss this hard stop. <laughs> Believe me, I believe in hard stops and we will absolutely respect it. Um, let me just ask you about, um, so your writing career, you've been a prolific writer. You've, you've produced dozens of books. Uh, of the many you've written, which one's your personal favorite and why? Uh, the, the two, because I can't choose between them, okay. is uh, There is More, which deals with the uh, impartation and the baptism of the Holy Spirit or baptized in the spirit. I think it was the title of it because I think there's so much confusion and misunderstanding about that. And I think what, what I've written is a, is a bridge building, uh, uh, ironic gathering together people from other beliefs that they've been touched powerfully by the Holy spirit. They would say they've been baptized in the spirit or they don't use that word. They may say I was filled with the spirit but they wouldn't all have the same experience or have same manifestations or anything to be evidence of it, uh, pointing out how the, 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 the real issue is power, this change of new dimension of power in your life, regardless of the manifestations and showing them from the scripture, all these diver- diversity of scripture needs to be our model that we can have a diversity in the life of the church today. The issue is to make sure everybody has been in the field. Yeah. It's one thing to receive the spirit because I believe we're all born with the spirit and I believe right. it's really bad theology and, and, and classical Pentecostals, their doctrine doesn't teach this. It's just sometimes some of the lay people get, are, get real sloppy in their language. I know what they mean, but they'll say, do you have the spirit? Well, you know, if you don't have the spirit, you don't belong to Jesus. <laughs> if you don't have the spirit of Jesus. You don't belong to him. So. Right. And so they're not asking that question. What they mean to ask is, have you been overwhelmed, filled, baptized? Are you walking in the fullness of the spirit? And that's a different question. And so I try to clarify that and look at, I look at the scripture and I look at uh, church history. And I really like what I found in the fathers and uh, uh, in the first few hundreds of years, uh, just the emphasis of, of the importance of being filled with the spirit. And how and how important that was in the early church and the language that they had for it, uh, you know, like uh, to Turlin, I think it was what he wrote to the catechumens who were about to be baptized uh, was uh, blew my mind as he's t- and, and I was talking to a, a Catholic bishop recently. Uh, he wanted me to come and do a thing for their diocese for training their Catholic priest. Uh, but anyway, uh, I said, would you like to see more people actually experience what they're supposed to experience? When you lay hands on them, he said, yeah. And I said, okay, then you need to have your catechumens, your catechists teach what they could expect. You need to build faith. You need to build yeah. hunger. And if you have that, I believe that this, um, the Catholic Church would call it a, a sacrament, uh, will carry the power it's supposed to carry. And I, I just want to see that. I don't care if they're Orthodox or Catholic or Reformed, right. Pentecostal or Lutheran or Methodist. I've met people in all those denominations that's just hungry for God and used of God. And, you know, one of the things that I have to leave after this, because my wife just came in and told me. Is, that's fine. We're good. But, but uh, Bill Johnson, he can't tell you, like, I, you know, my experience, 16 years old, Sunday form of 16th birthday. I know when I got saved. Man, it was powerful, powerful experience. It was so emotional. It was so guilt gone, you know. Bill can't do that. And there was a time in my life I didn't think if you couldn't say when that happened, you it hadn't happened to you. Yeah. But I realized how that's wrong because he came in a very and raised in a parsonage. His dad was a pastor. He just walked with Jesus and had a relationship with Jesus. He said, I can't tell you when it started, but I can tell you I've got one. And I first learned that I was about 20 years old in a church. I took over to pastors, United Church of Christ. And um, uh, there were elderly people there I met that they'd start. I'd start talking to them with their new pastor. I was like 22 years old, something like that. And uh, 
I could tell they loved Jesus. I could tell they had a relationship with him. And at the same time, there were some people on my board. I could tell they had no relationship with Jesus. Yeah. They, they needed to get saved, you know, the cussed like a sailor. And I asked him, well, why do you want him to keep the doors of this church open? He said, uh, because if we close them, the, the, the 400 acres uh, with mineral rights will go to this Christian uh, college over here. We want to keep it. Uh, I think, and, and thankfully, he wasn't typical. You know, but anyway, having said that, those are my two favorite books. However, my students' favorite book is the first one I wrote, um, Lighting Fires, which was autobiographical. And I asked him one time, uh, and I was, before I'd written some of these others, but anyway, I asked him, why do you like this book? I, these are not my, this is not my favorite book. I got some that's a lot, I like a lot better. And uh, they said, because it was so encouraging. And I said, well, what do you mean? He said, you were so honest in your book about your life. It's good parts. It's bad parts when you succeeded, when you failed. That after I read your book, I just felt like that if God could use you, he could use anybody. Well, that's quite an invitation, isn't it? That, uh, that anybody gets to play or John used to yeah. say everybody, everybody gets, to, gets play. to play. Yeah. Um, so you wrote a book that embodied that. And, uh, I hope my new book has the same effect when it, uh, hits the shelves anyway. Um, Brandy, we're out of time and I know yeah. you've got to get going. So we will have you back on the show again, but okay. in the meantime, go have a great uh, time with your wife and your family tonight. And, uh, thank you so much for, um, fitting us into your very busy schedule. Yeah. You're welcome, Ken. God bless you. Bless this ministry and all, all right. that you do. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Randy, anything you want to add before we sign off? No, as as Randy is leaving, uh, we can just uh, thank everyone that's listening and has joined in. And we'll look forward to seeing you uh, right back here uh, next week for another episode. Ken, that was a it was a great time. And um, we definitely got to get him get him back on uh, back online. So that, that was fun. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. Amen. So. All right. Well, we'll uh, we'll be right back here at this time next week. recently updated the Orbis Ministries app with Ken's free teaching archive. You can click on the link in the description of this podcast to download today.